Over the past number of weeks here at Rosedale, we have been dealing with this subject of sexual sin in our expository study of 1 Corinthians. This morning, we're going to finish up our journey through chapter 6 of that book by tackling this one final issue. This is not an easy issue to speak about, but it's an issue that we absolutely must speak about in our churches, especially in the culture in which we are now living. The subject we're going to tackle this morning is homosexuality. The reason that we're going to tackle that topic is because of what Paul writes in verses 9 to 11 of our text under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And listen carefully as I reread these very important verses from the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Although we are going to briefly address Paul's statement about homosexuality here in 1 Corinthians 6, my goal today is not so much to exposit this one part of Scripture, but rather to give a comprehensive overview of what the Bible teaches on this subject so that we as a congregation will understand God's perfect design for sex and marriage, and so that we will respond in love and grace. I think it's very important right at the outset of a message like this one to recognize we are dealing here with a sensitive issue that has the potential to evoke a strong emotional response. I'm well aware of that this morning. I want to deal with this subject with as much grace and as much truthfulness as I possibly can. I have no hatred in my heart towards the gay community. I hope that you don't either. And I can say with complete honesty this morning, I feel about homosexuals the same way I feel about any other type of sexual sinner. They are men and women created in God's image who need the grace and the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can provide. And by the way, that's the same grace and forgiveness that you and I have already received when God cleansed us of our sin and rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. Homosexuality is not a hobby horse issue for me. In my five years here at Rosedale, this is the first time that I have addressed this subject from the pulpit at any length or in any depth. But as most of you will know by now, here at this church, we deal with topics as they come up in our regular study of Scripture, and my responsibility as a minister of the Gospel is not to avoid the things that can make us feel uncomfortable or to cater to the whims of our contemporary culture, but rather to preach the whole counsel of God and to let the Word of God speak for itself. And so with God's help, that is exactly what we're going to do this morning. It shouldn't come as any surprise to us that sexual attitudes or attitudes towards sexual morality have changed drastically over the past 50 years or so. First of all, with regard to heterosexual sins, such as unbiblical divorce, adultery, and premarital sex, and now in more recent time with regard to homosexual sin and transgenderism. Homosexuality has transitioned over the past 50 years from a practice that was almost universally rejected and frowned upon to a practice that is now widely celebrated and praised with parades and rainbow flags, large pride events in almost every major North American city. Thirty years ago, you would have been hard-pressed to find a, a politician who would associate with the gay rights movement, but today politicians who refuse to march publicly in these events are labeled as bigots, as homophobes, and are castigated in the media. Only a few short decades ago, it would have been almost impossible to find a single Christian church, whether liberal or conservative, that was supportive of homosexuality. But today, almost all liberal Protestants have come out in favor of gay marriage, along with an increasing contingent of evangelicals. In recent years, a number of high-profile evangelical leaders and authors have publicly changed their views about homosexuality and are now vocal advocates of gay marriage. Men and women such as Brian McLaren, 
Rob Bell, Jen Hatmaker, even Tony Campolo. And sadly, I can guarantee you that they will not be the last ones as this sexual revolution continues to move forward as the cultural pressure grows stronger and stronger. It may not be too long, brothers and sisters, before we find ourselves in the minority among professing Christians when it comes to our convictions about sexual sin, our resolve to take an unwavering, unchanging stand upon the authority of God's Word. The views in the pews are changing when it comes to homosexuality, and they are changing far more rapidly than any of us thought possible. According to a Gallup poll in 2001, only 40% of Americans viewed homosexuality as morally acceptable, while 53% said it was morally wrong. Ten years later, in 2012, those numbers were completely flipped around with 53% calling it morally acceptable and only 42% saying it was morally wrong. Here in our Canadian context, the moral transition has happened even more rapidly. Here in Canada, same-sex marriage was legalized back in 2005, making us the first country outside of Europe and the fourth country in all of the world to legally recognize and validate such unions. But today, gay marriage is legal in 23 countries and counting, including our closest neighbor to the south, which was at one time a staunch opponent. It's obvious the moral values of Western civilization are undergoing a seismic shift, but as Christians, we stand upon the solid rock of Christ Jesus and the unchanging truth and authority of His Word. And it's to the Word of God that I'd like us to turn right now so that we can discover what it teaches about homosexuality and what it teaches about how we should respond as Christians. As we look into the Word of God this morning, we're going to focus, first of all, on God's original design for marriage and sexuality, and then we will look briefly at a number of scriptures that demonstrate why homosexuality distorts God's design and how this sin will eventually lead to an eternity of separation from God. And then finally, we'll, we will answer a couple questions and consider how we as Christians can respond in love and grace to those who are involved with this type of sexual sin. Well, God's original plan for sexuality and marriage is revealed to us in the opening chapters of the Bible. I'd like us to turn to those chapters before we turn to anything else. And I'm going to be putting some of the passages up on the screen. The opening chapters of Genesis are particularly instructive for us because they give us a glimpse of life on earth before sin entered into the picture and messed everything up. These two chapters give us a beautiful picture of life and human relationships as God intended them to be, and they include a description of the very first marriage between the very first humans, the marriage of Adam and Eve. Back in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, we read, first of all, about God's creation of this first human couple. Let's look at that text. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over all the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right here on the first page of the first book of the Bible, we discover that God created the human race in two sexes. Now both of these sexes, the male and the female, were designed to reflect the image and the likeness of our God here on earth. Now of course to bear the image of God doesn't mean that we look physically like God or that God has a physical body like us. Rather it means we reflect God's glorious attributes in other ways. Like God, we human beings are rational. And like God, we human beings are relational. Like God, we human beings exercise authority and dominion over the earth. This idea of image bearing is what sets us apart from the rest of the animal world. It's what gives us a dignity and a moral responsibility that goes beyond any other creature that God has made. God created the human race to reflect His image in a way that nothing else could. And it's significant to note in Genesis 1, both men and women are declared to be equal bearers of that divine image. 
What that means, friends, is that there is a fundamental equality between the two sexes that is part of God's original design. Men are no more important than women, and women are no more important than men. Just as God the Father is no more important than God the Son or than God the Holy Spirit. We see within the Trinity an essential equality between Father, Son, and Spirit. And that perfect equality is reflected in God's image bearers, the male and the female. But that's not the only reason why God created us in two different genders. For in verse 28 we read what is sometimes called the creation mandate. A command to multiply and to fill the earth with more image bearers. You see, God's intention for the human race from the very beginning was sexual union and reproduction, something that is only possible between a biological male and a biological female. It is a plan, it is a design that requires two distinct sexes that God specifically designed to fit together, both sexually and emotionally. Genesis 1 establishes the creation of the two sexes, but when we turn the page and come to Genesis 2, the camera zooms in on the coming together of this first human couple. And so let's look at Genesis 2, verses 15 to 25. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Back in Genesis 1, the main emphasis on the text was was the equality of the male and the female as equal bearers of the divine image. But here in Genesis 2, we learn that there are also important differences between the two sexes. We learn here in Genesis 2 that God created the man first and that God created the woman out of the man to be his helper. In other words, God is teaching us that within our equality, men and women have different roles to play. We also learn from verse 24 what God designed marriage to be. One man and one woman united physically and emotionally for one lifetime. It is a one flesh union that requires each partner to leave their parents and to cleave to one another. Now very obviously, here in Genesis 2, God created the man and the woman to complement one another in the marriage relationship. The man is designed by God to lead and protect his wife. The woman is designed by God to help and support her husband. And that complementary relationship is also biological since God designed the sexual organs of the male and the female to fit together for the purpose of procreation. It is through sexual union that the creation mandate will be fulfilled and the earth filled with God's image bearers. There are many foundational principles here in Genesis 1 and 2 that speak directly to God's design for marriage and sexuality, and we ignore God's blueprint at our own peril. First of all, we discover here in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created two genders and only two genders. This is a truth that goes directly contrary to the modern ideology that wants us to see gender as a fluid social construct. And so today in the province of Ontario, our public school children are being taught by their teachers that the biological parts they were born with do not necessarily match up with their true gender identity. Boys are now encouraged to identify and dress as girls, and girls are free to identify and dress as boys. And later on down the road, if you want a surgery or hormonal treatment to make your body match your preferred gender, that option is available, and the government will even foot the bill. 
This is how far we've come, brothers and sisters. This is how far we have deviated from God's Word. But God's Word is not unclear about these matters. In the beginning, God created two genders, and those two genders are fixed both biologically and genetically. You and I don't get the liberty of choosing our gender or of changing our gender. That part of your identity and your personhood was chosen and preordained by the Creator Himself. And even in those rare cases where a baby is born with ambiguous genitals, the true gender of the child can be determined by looking at the genetic information. If you have a Y chromosome in your cells, you are a male. If you do not have a Y chromosome, you are a female. And even though there are indeed some rare cases where corrective surgery is needed to bring the physical body into greater conformity with the true gender, those cases should be considered the exception and not the rule. You see, friends, God's Word has something important to say about transgenderism. It is simply this. God created us male and female, and we do not have the liberty to choose which gender we will become. That part of our identity was chosen on our behalf by the sovereign God who designed and created each and every one of us for his own glory. Well, once we have come to embrace this biblical truth that God created two genders and only two genders, and that our gender corresponds with the genetic information in ourselves, we can understand more clearly God's design for marriage and sexuality as described in Genesis 2. It is crystal clear from the Bible that God intended marriage to be heterosexual and not homosexual. I don't think anybody can read the Bible honestly and come to any other conclusion. Marriage, by definition, is the union of one man and one woman, and part of the purpose of that union is the bearing and the raising of children, something that is biologically impossible between two men in a sexual relationship or between two women in a sexual relationship. It's also clear from the Bible that God designed marriage to be monogamous and exclusive. Adultery, polygamy go against God's design for sexuality. And because of that, we as Christians must reject these kinds of practices, declare them to be immoral. Finally, Genesis emphasized the permanence of marriage, the importance of sexual intimacy within marriage, describing marriage as a one flesh union. What that means practically is that we Christians are not sexually repressed as many people in our modern world seem to think. As biblical Christians, we are completely in favor of sex. We embrace it as a wonderful gift from God. But that being said, we are only in favor of sex within the boundaries that God has wisely ordained, and that is where we differ from much of the non-believing world. According to the Bible, sexual intimacy is only to be enjoyed within the boundaries of the marriage covenant, and we discover here in Genesis 2, the marriage covenant is heterosexual by definition. The government of Canada might recognize gay marriage as a legal option for our citizens, but God's word does not recognize gay marriage, and neither does God's true church on earth. And if these two chapters from Genesis were the only chapters that we had in the Bible on marriage and sexuality, we would have more than enough information to conclude that homosexuality is a distortion of God's design. It is not a sexual practice that is pleasing to our God. But as you're probably aware, these are not the only passages in God's Word that speak to this issue. And so we will now turn and look briefly at a few other Bible passages dealing with homosexuality, starting first of all with the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Some of the strongest, some of the most negative statements in the Bible that address homosexuality are found in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, one reference in chapter 18, a second reference in chapter 20. These two chapters in Leviticus are part of the holiness code. They are part of the law that God gave to his people through Moses. Rules and boundaries that were meant to govern their lives to demonstrate to the surrounding nations that the Israelites were indeed God's chosen people, that they were a nation set apart to reflect the holiness and the glory of God in a world that is fallen and broken by sin. Unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to get into great detail about the book of Leviticus, but I do want to read the relevant passages that deal with homosexuality. First, in chapter 18, verses 22 and 23, we read these words. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
You shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. Leviticus 18 is a chapter that deals with sexual sin from beginning to end, but there is a definite downward progression in the way that these sins are described and categorized. The first half of Leviticus 18 deals with heterosexual sins, sins that are committed between a male and a female. And so God prohibits in the first part of the chapter all forms of incest and extramarital sex and adultery. Leviticus 18 begins with heterosexual sin, but as the chapter unfolds, we are brought further and further away from God's original design, first with a description of homosexuality in verse 22, and then with a description of bestiality in verse 23. And so we can see this downward progression of sin, beginning with those sexual sins that are according to nature because they involve a man and a woman, and then ending with sexual sins that are contrary to nature. Men having sex with other men, and men and women having sex with animals. It is also significant to note in this chapter that homosexuality is described by the inspired author with one of the most negative and one of the strongest words in all of the Hebrew language. It is described here in verse 22 as an abomination. In other words, homosexual acts are something that God detests. If we flip over the page to chapter 20, many of these same laws about sexual sin are repeated with the corresponding punishments. And so we read in chapter 20, verse 13, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. This probably sounds very shocking to our modern ears, but in the context of ancient Israel and the Old Testament law, homosexuality was a capital offense, as was adultery and a number of other sexual sins. There's no doubt about it, the book of Leviticus as a whole, and these verses in particular, raise difficult questions about how the Old Testament law applies to Christians living under the new covenant in Christ. And because the book of Leviticus is so challenging to understand, because this book contains so many strange-sounding commandments and practices that we no longer observe, many of us Christians don't really know what to do with this book, what to think of this part of God's Word. Either we ignore it completely and we secretly wish that it wasn't in the Bible, or else we accept it hesitantly with a bit of embarrassment, or else we write it off as an obsolete law code that is no longer relevant on this side of the cross. Many Christians today have adopted a negative and dismissive attitude towards Leviticus. But the problem with this posture is that it goes directly contrary to the attitude of Jesus Christ, who once said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Beyond that, the problem with dismissing Leviticus is that Jesus and the apostles often quote from this book, and that part of Christ's best love teaching is a direct quotation from the book of Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And are we really ready and willing to relegate that part of Leviticus to the dustbin of ancient history? The right response then as Christians is not to ignore the book of Leviticus or to shrug this book off as irrelevant, but rather to do the hard work of understanding it. Because everything that was written in the Word of God was written for our instruction. And what becomes evident to the diligent student of Scripture is that nothing in Leviticus is unimportant, nothing is irrelevant for the Christian believer. The laws that we find in Leviticus can be divided into three basic categories. First are the ceremonial law that deal with the sacrificial system and issues of ritual cleanness and uncleanness. Next are the civil laws that deal with the governance of Israel during that early stage of God's unfolding plan. Thirdly and finally are the moral laws that reflect God's unchanging standards for the human race and especially for His covenant people. Now when it comes to the ceremonial laws of Leviticus, all the rules about animal sacrifice and kosher food and ritual defilement, we recognize as Christians those laws have been perfectly fulfilled in Christ. We obey those laws by trusting in Jesus who has perfectly fulfilled them on our behalf. That's how a Christian obeys Leviticus. You are obeying Leviticus when you trust in Christ who is the fulfillment of the law. When we come across the civil law in Leviticus, we must recognize Israel at this moment in history was being directly governed by God. 
Ancient Israel was a theocratic kingdom, but today we are no longer living in a theocracy. We will not be living in one until Christ returns again to fully establish His kingdom. It is not the job of God's people in the new covenant to inflict capital punishment on sinners or to take on the role of the state. That is why the church of Christ does not kill adulterers and homosexuals and Sabbath breakers. Why it would be absolutely wrong and absolutely sinful for us to do so. All of the ceremonial and the civil laws in Leviticus have been fulfilled in Christ and the church. But when it comes to the moral laws, we understand that God's standards have not changed. God's standards reflect the the purity and the glory of our unchanging Creator. Leviticus is not the easiest book to understand. I think we can agree about that. But just because a book in the Bible is challenging doesn't mean we throw it in the trash and pretend that it is not there. You see, friends, all of the moral instruction in the Old Testament regarding our sexual conduct and our obligation to love our neighbor as ourself is just as relevant today as when God revealed it to Moses. Adultery, incest, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, We're all sinful in the Old Testament. And as we will now see, God has not changed His mind about sexual ethics in the New Testament. We move on now from the Old Testament Scripture to the New Testament Scripture. I'd ask you to turn with me to the first chapter of Romans where we find what is certainly the clearest and most definitive teaching on homosexuality in the New Testament. Words that were written by the Apostle Paul and words that confirm what we have already observed in both Genesis And Leviticus, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This is what the Word of God says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Paul's aim in the opening part of Romans is to demonstrate beyond all dispute that humanity has fallen into a state of total depravity and that none of us have a leg to stand on apart from the grace and mercy of Christ who alone is able to justify and save. Paul's main focus here in chapter 1 is on the sin of idolatry. Our natural desire has fallen men and women to suppress the truth about God the Creator and to put lesser things in His place. When we get down to verse 26, we discover Paul points to homosexuality as proof of our idolatry, as proof of our human tendency to rebel against God's created order and design. What's particularly informative about Paul's comments here in Romans 1 is that he views homosexuality not only as something that will lead to God's judgment in the future, but also as evidence that God's judgment has already arrived, that God's wrath against sin is already being revealed from heaven as we speak. Three separate times in this chapter, we read, God gave them up. That's a frightening little phrase. It teaches us that God sometimes chooses to judge our sin and our rebellion by giving us exactly what we want. By allowing us to indulge in the very things that he knows will ultimately bring us into a state of bondage and misery. And so we read in these verses, God has revealed his wrath against human sin by giving us up to sexual impurity, by giving us up to homosexuality, by giving us up to a debased mind. 
And all of these things, according to Romans 1, are evidence that God's judgment has already arrived. We focus in specifically on Paul's teaching in verses 26 to 28, several important truths about homosexuality jump off the page. First of all, we observe here, Paul not only addresses homosexual activity between two men, but also sexual activity between two women. According to Paul's inspired teaching here in Romans 1, lesbianism is just as sinful in God's eyes as sodomy. That is a truth that is implied in the Old Testament, but it is made explicit here by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Secondly, we see in this passage the Apostle Paul views any form of gay or lesbian sex as a violation of the biological and the moral order that God has ordained for his human creation. He identifies homosexuality as a sin against nature because it is something that goes contrary to God's original design for sexuality. It is something that goes completely contrary to God's design for marriage that was established way back in the Garden of Eden before humankind ever fell into sin. Here in the book of Romans, the Bible portrays homosexuality as something that's unnatural. And this biblical truth is further emphasized in the tiny epistle of Jude near the end of the New Testament. In verse 7 of the book of Jude, the author reflects back on the Old Testament destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he concludes that God's judgment fell upon those two cities because the inhabitants indulged in sexual immorality and because they pursued unnatural desire. You see, friends, homosexual acts are unnatural acts, and when we engage in such acts, we are rebelling against God's design for creation. And when we are rebelling against God's design for creation, we fall into grievous forms of idolatry where we put ourselves and our own sexual preferences in the place of God. Well, the final text I want to look at this morning brings us back to the book of 1 Corinthians. Corinthians, a passage that we've been considering over the past number of weeks. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul reminds the church, it is impossible for us to indulge in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin and still expect to enter the kingdom of God. And so he lists in these verses a number of moral offenses that will eventually lead us to eternal separation from God if we do not turn away from them in repentance and turn towards Christ for salvation. We've already spoken quite a bit about these verses in previous sermons. This morning I want to focus our attention specifically on Paul's comment in verse 9 that men who practice homosexuality will not enter the kingdom of God. Now at first glance, this verse might seem fairly simple and straightforward, but it is actually one of the most hotly contested passages on homosexuality in the Bible. And a few weeks ago, one of you actually raised this issue at the back door Because you notice that the words in the Blue Pew Bible are slightly different from the words in the English translation that I use from the pulpit. Now the reason that some of our English translations differ here in verse 9 is because Paul uses two different Greek words in that verse and not every scholar agrees on what exactly those two words mean. In the ESV translation that I prefer to use, the Greek words are translated by a single English phrase. Men who practice homosexuality. But in other translations, they are rendered differently. For example, in the older version of the NIV that you have in the pew, you will notice the words are translated as male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. If you're using the King James Version, these words are translated as effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind. You see, there is a difference of opinion about how these words should best be translated, and it's a very significant issue because in recent years, a number of people have been arguing that Paul is not condemning homosexuality in general, but that Paul is only condemning a certain oppressive and promiscuous form of homosexuality. This is a modern revisionist understanding of the Bible, and we find hints of this revisionism in the NIV, where the translators suggest that Paul is speaking about gay prostitution and not about gay sex in general. Now, sadly, some of the revisionist scholars have gone much further than the NIV translators and are now arguing very loudly and very forcefully that this is how we should understand all of the biblical references that speak about homosexuality, including the ones in Leviticus and Romans that we've already considered today. 
In essence, their argument is that the Bible only condemns violent, oppressive forms of homosexuality, like rape and prostitution and pedophilia. They say that the Bible has nothing negative to say about stable, monogamous, same-sex unions like some of the ones we encounter today in our modern world. Now, for a long time, this revisionist understanding of the Bible was only embraced by a few liberal scholars out on the fringe. But over the past decade or so, this fringe interpretation of the Scripture has come to the very forefront of popular preaching and literature. This interpretation of the New Testament is now being used in our own evangelical churches and denominations to promote same-sex marriage. In essence, these revisionist scholars expect us to believe that the Christian church has misunderstood the Bible's true teaching about homosexuality for the past two millennia, but that now a small group of liberal-minded academics and pastors have finally got it right. And how convenient that these worldly wise men have finally figured it all out at this moment in history when there is such tremendous pressure on the church to compromise its moral position, to embrace gay marriage, to abandon the truth we've been considering today. Brothers and sisters, I do not need to tell you I don't accept this interpretation of the Bible. I don't think you should accept it either. Revisionist scholars want us to believe that Paul is speaking about gay prostitutes in 1 Corinthians, but it is far more likely that Paul is speaking about any expression of homosexual behavior between two males. Don't want to come across this morning as overly graphic or crude. But the two Greek words that Paul has specifically chosen here in this verse most likely correspond to the two partners involved in an act of sodomy. One of those Greek words in verse 9 means effeminate. It most likely describes the passive partner who plays the role of the woman. The other Greek word is translated homosexual. It describes the active partner who plays the role of the man. This is why the ESV translators have rendered the phrase as one, men who practice homosexuality. And so I, for one, do not accept the revisionist interpretation of this text. Quite frankly, I think it is absolutely and fundamentally misguided. But even if we were to concede that this verse in 1 Corinthians is referring to prostitution, there is no warrant for imposing that understanding on every other text in the Bible that speaks about homosexuality. What I've just explained to you about Greek words and Bible translations might seem a bit complicated, but the bottom line here is not that complicated at all, and I hope that everyone in this assembly today can can see this clearly. The Bible has absolutely nothing positive to say about homosexuality. The Bible indicates from first to last that homosexual acts are unnatural. The Bible declares that those men and women who engage in such a lifestyle of unrepentant sexual sin will not enter the kingdom of God. It is really just as plain and as simple as that. The biblical teaching on homosexuality is not difficult to figure out. And that's why the Church of Christ has spoken with one unified voice on this topic for nearly 2,000 years. Some of our modern-day churches and denominations may change their mind on this subject. Some of our friends and our former colleagues in the ministry may change their mind on this subject. But God has not changed His mind. And by God's grace, here at Rosedale Baptist Church, we will remain faithful to the teaching of God's Word, no matter how unpopular it may become, and no matter what the cost might be. We must never, ever compromise God's truth to gain the applause and acceptance of the world, and we do not love our neighbor as ourself by promoting and blessing what God has forbidden. We've already covered a lot of ground this morning from all over the Bible, but I want to conclude our time together with some application points about how we as Christians should respond to those who struggle with this form of sexual sin. Homosexuality is not an abstract issue that we can talk about in abstract terms. This is a personal issue. It involves real-life people. And perhaps for some of us in this room today, it involves members of our own family or or people who live down the road on our street or people who we see every day in work, at work or in school or people that we are privileged to call our friends. 
And because this is a personal issue, because it is a relational issue, we must as Christians have the right perspective on things and ensure that we are representing the Lord Jesus well, both inside and outside of the church. Whenever we interact with somebody from the gay community, it is important that we recognize, first and foremost, we are all part of the fallen human race that is in desperate need of a Savior. It doesn't really matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your sexual history may be. We are all sinners who have no hope for salvation apart from the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And what that means, friends, is that we must resist the prideful temptation to believe that we are somehow more deserving of God's mercy and grace than our homosexual neighbors and friends. I do not deserve God's grace any more than the next sinner, and because of that, I don't have the right to assume a posture of superiority, as though God chose me because of something He saw in me that He didn't see in someone else. Friends, the truth is, God chose me, God saved me, not because of my moral virtue, but in spite of my moral failure, in spite of my sin. And were it not for the grace of God that placed me in a Christian home, that saved me at a young age, that protected me from many snares and dangers along the way, I know without question I would be as morally corrupt as anyone else. We Christians have been saved by grace and by grace alone. And when we truly come to understand that humbling truth, it enables us to look upon other sinners with love and compassion, just as the Lord Jesus looked on sinners with compassion and saw them as sheep who need a shepherd. And so the first point of application has nothing to do with homosexuals. It has to do with us. If there is any hint of prideful superiority in your heart, any hint of spiteful hatred towards lost people who have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the very first thing we need to do this morning is to repent and to ask God to change our hearts, to cleanse us from pride, to give us a genuine love for the lost. Although we can and we should hate the sin of homosexuality just as we hate every sin, we should never hate homosexuals because they are our neighbors. They are our fellow humans created in the image and likeness of God. They are men and women who stand in need of God's saving grace just as you and I once stood in need of God's saving grace. And so, brothers and sisters, let us begin with an examination of our own hearts. And if there is repentance that needs to take place for sinful pride, let's ask the Lord to soften our hearts. Let's ask the Lord to convict us and to give us a genuine love for the lost. The second thing we must understand this morning by way of application is that homosexuality is indeed a sin that will lead to eternal separation from God if it is not forsaken and cleansed by the blood of Christ. Some modern-day Christians have bought into the lie that the most loving and the most compassionate thing we can do for our homosexual friends and neighbors and loved ones is to accept their lifestyle as a valid moral option to quit calling homosexuality a sin and to either ignore or reinterpret parts of the Bible that do not fit with our modern, contemporary, secular morality. Let me say, friends, in response to this modern cultural impulse, it is never loving to encourage someone in a lifestyle of sin that will eventually lead that person to hell. And that goes not only for homosexuals, but for any type of sinner who has not embraced Christ as Lord and Savior. Although it is probably true that most people in Canada now believe that it is hateful and homophobic to call this lifestyle a sin, the reason we continue to do so as Christians is not because we hate homosexuals, but because we know what the ultimate consequences of sin will be. And if we do not warn men and women about the ultimate consequences of their sin and their unbelief, how are we loving them with the love of Christ? Our actions need to be like that of the Apostle Paul who expressed his love for lost humanity by warning them, by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We proclaim him, Paul writes in Colossians, admonishing, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone complete in Christ. May the same thing be said of you and me, that we've loved people in our lives by warning them of the consequences of sin, by pointing them towards the one who died on the cross so that lost sinners can be saved. 
you're here this morning and you have family members or neighbors who are part of the gay community, I would encourage you and admonish you not to avoid them. Build relationships with them. Love them with the love of Christ. Treat them with the dignity and respect that every human being deserves. But at the same time, I would caution you this morning about doing or saying anything that might give the impression that you approve of their lifestyle. Although each situation is unique, the specifics of these relationships are not easy to navigate. I'm convinced the one line we ought never to cross as Christians is to attend a gay wedding. Now I understand this can be a very difficult step to take, but by attending these functions, we are implicitly supporting a course of action that is sinful, that is unbiblical, and that is destructive to the institution of the family and to the well-being of our society. These kinds of choices are not easy. This is difficult. But one thing's for sure. As this sexual revolution continues to unfold, as homosexuality and transgenderism become more accepted in our society, we are in desperate need of God's wisdom to know how we can love and befriend the sexually broken in a way that does not give our tacit approval to their sin. Rick Warren, who I don't normally quote, once said something that I found very helpful in navigating these issues, and I want to pass on this quotation to you. Pastor Warren says, Our culture has embraced two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. And to that I would add a hearty amen. Well, the final thing that we need to recognize by way of application is that homosexuality is a very difficult struggle for many people. And even within our Christian churches, there are brothers and sisters who struggle deeply with same-sex attraction. I think that one of the great mistakes the church has made in the past is to assume that every person who's attracted to the members of the same sex has freely chosen to have that attraction and that they can simply change their mind and choose to be attracted to members of the opposite sex. We have often assumed in our churches that sexual attraction is like a light switch that can be flipped one way or the other simply by exercising the will. Second related mistake the church has made, and often with good intentions, is to tell those with unwanted homosexual desires that God will take those desires and thoughts away if they will only pray enough, if they will only read their Bibles enough, if they will only seek enough good biblical counseling. The truth, however, is that things are not always that simple and clear-cut. Many of our brothers and sisters struggle against sexual attractions they do not want and that they did not ask for. Although it is certainly indisputably true our God is able to change our desires to replace our disordered attractions with natural attractions, the reality is that God does not always choose to do that for reasons we can't understand. In the New Testament, Paul struggled persistently with some kind of a weakness or illness that he called the thorn in the flesh. And on three separate occasions, he asked the Lord to remove it from him. But on all three of those occasions, the Lord said no. In response to Paul's persistent prayers for deliverance, the Lord reassured him his grace would be sufficient, that his power was made perfect in our human weakness. Every single person in this room today actively struggles with sexual temptation or at least has struggled with sexual temptation at some time in the past. For the majority of us, those temptations and struggles will be heterosexual in nature, but for some of us, those struggles might be homosexual. And for those of us who struggle with same-sex attraction, it may be the case that those desires and those temptations will not go away, no matter how much we pray about it, no matter how much we read the Bible, no matter how much counseling we seek. God's answers to our prayers for deliverance may be the same as His answer to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. In responding to homosexuality as Christians, it is critically important to make a distinction between sexual temptation and sexual sin. All of us, without exception, are tempted in various ways, but we do not commit a sin against God until we entertain those temptations and give in to them. 
Now, for those of us who are tempted to sin with members of the opposite sex, God's call on our lives is to live a life of sexual purity in our thoughts and in our deeds. And for those of us who may be tempted to sin with members of the same sex, God's call on our lives is precisely the same, to live a life of sexual purity before God. Now, for those Christians who do struggle with same-sex attraction, and it's a persistent struggle, the only option might be a celibate life, a single life. The rest of us in the church need to understand and to appreciate just how difficult that commitment can be. And we need to surround these brothers and sisters with love and support. We need to truly be the family of God to them. I have a Christian friend that I met on a missions project back in my undergraduate days. And ever since I've known this brother, he has struggled deeply with same-sex attraction. As a Christian, my friend understands it would be sinful for him to give in to these temptations, and so he has committed himself to living a single and celibate life. And I know for a fact it has not been an easy road for him, and it's going to be difficult in the future. But I want to tell you this. I have nothing but the deepest respect and admiration for my friend and for all those like him who are fighting that same battle for sexual purity. Oh, that all of us would have that kind of resolve and courage to fight the battle for purity in our own lives. That we would have the conviction and the resolve through the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to the temptations that come our way. The world that we are living in, friends, is a complex world. It's a fallen world. It's a broken world. It's a world that is not easy to navigate. The good news is that things won't always be this way. In this world you have trouble, Jesus said, but be not dismayed. I have overcome the world. Our King Jesus is coming again one day, and when he comes, he will set everything right in this broken world. And for that, we can be truly thankful. And we can say, Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen.